You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Thanks so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Well, friends, good morning. Uh, my name is Spencer, and uh, I want to welcome you this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, open them to, with me to John chapter 21. This is part three of a series called Enough, where we're exploring uh, contentment, the idea of, of being content and how to build this into our lives. And, and uh, really, there's just a few, few, few ways that you can build contentment into your life. One is, if you want to like, say you have enough in life and be content, one approach you could have to that is you just like, get more stuff. That's, that's one way that you can try to have enough is just to get more. You can build a bigger garage and a bigger closet and you can have more shoes and newer cars. And that's, that's one approach that you can take to, to having enough. And that's like the normal approach that most of us try. But what happens with that, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but when you take that approach to having enough in life, you never have enough. Like you, you create this, this hunger for more by trying to get more and it never satisfies itself. And um, so that's one approach you can take to having enough. Uh, another approach that you can take is the Jesus approach and the Jesus approach is not to get more. That's not how you have enough, but rather to, to give more. And so Jesus said things like, um, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And so there's this counterintuitive way of following Jesus where we find that we have enough, um, not when we accumulate, but when we practice generosity. And so we're exploring this uh, connection between generosity and, and contentment in the series. And what we find is that in the kingdom of God, uh, generosity and contentment are two sides of the same coin. They, they go together and they are built off of one another that the way we find that we have enough in life is when we practice this way of Jesus, of, of generosity. And so we're exploring ways of, of building this into our lives. And, and we want to be practical in this series. This is not just about good ideas, but rather how do we actually implement this and live differently. And so we're trying to get practical as we work our way through this. And there are some practical things I want you to be aware of as well. For one, uh, we have created a website with some tips and tools and and some ways that you can build more uh, generosity and contentment in your life, I encourage you to go there. It's called enough.sumc.co, and there'll be some, some tools there. If, if this is something that the Spirit is speaking to you about as we go through this series, check out the website. Another very practical uh, uh, thing we're doing in this series is that this coming week, you're going to receive, if that is, we have your address, you're going to receive um, a, what we call a commitment card or a pledge card for the church's uh, uh, finances. And and this commitment card, the reason we do this is because what I've discovered in my Christian life is that pretty much nothing spiritually just happens. Like I don't grow spiritually on accident. Spiritual growth doesn't happen on accident. Generosity is that kind of thing as well. I don't accidentally become generous. It's, it's been something in my life that I have to tend to and, and pay attention to and cultivate and and what we've found is that generosity and commitment and, and uh, these kind of pledge cards that we do is such a helpful exercise to put pen to paper and to think through this question of what is God calling me to do? What is God calling me to do? How do I be faithful in this area of my life? And so I want to encourage you to, to pay attention to that. We'll be collecting those next Sunday if you want to bring those um, with you to worship next week. Uh, today, we're going to talk about one of the great enemies of contentment. This is one of those things that if you don't get this right, you'll never be content with whatever you have in life. And we're going to find this in John 21. And so to set this up, here's what you need to know about John 21. This is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. Peter, James, John, some of the other disciples have been out fishing all night long. And they come back from fishing. They, they have breakfast on the beach. Jesus is there. Um, Jesus pulls Peter aside and has a, a little one-on-one -on -one side conversation with Peter. 
And uh, as he's having this little one-on-one side conversation with Peter, Jesus asks Peter a question. Three times we see it. John 21, you see it in verses 15, verse 16, and verse 17. Jesus asks Peter this question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Simon is because that's his actual name. Peter's his nickname, and so he calls him Simon, his real name. Do you, do you love me? Three times he asks this question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Anytime you're reading the Bible and you see something happen in a cycle of three, you should pay attention to those kinds of things. And when you see cycles like that happen, you should ask yourself a question like, I wonder, has anything else happened between Jesus and Peter in a cycle of three? Hmm. Oh yeah, I remember just a few days before this, Peter is in the courtyard. Jesus has been arrested and he three times denies that he even knows who Jesus is. Three times he denies his relationship with him. And so you have this question where Jesus is asking Peter three times this question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? It's, it's tied to this denial that Peter had. Jesus isn't trying to be annoying, just asking the same question over and over. It's, it's tied to this question of, of, of the denial that Peter has had. So three times Jesus asks Peter this question and three times Peter replies back with, this. He says, you know, I love you. Three times, you know, I love you. And each time Jesus asks Peter this question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And each time Peter comes back and says, you know, I love you. Jesus then tells Peter to do something. And here's what he tells Peter to do. Three times, verse 15, 16, 17. 15, he says, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he says, feed my sheep. Verse 17, he says, take care of my sheep. Now remember, Jesus, he's not a shepherd. He just called himself a shepherd. He's the good shepherd, as he called himself. He's actually a carpenter, but he called himself a good shepherd. And so three times, Jesus asks Peter this question. Three times, Peter says, I love you. Three times, Jesus says, now go do this thing, this this shepherding, take care of people. Go do what I've been doing. Three times here, what Jesus is doing is he's reminding Peter of, of the failure, but then he's restoring him with this with this work that he's been giving him. This is Peter's life's calling that Jesus is now giving to him, uh, that he is going to go do the thing that he has seen Jesus do. Peter, go and do what you have seen me doing. This is, this is the life's uh, work. This is how you're gonna spend your years is doing this work. And immediately after Jesus says this, here's what Jesus says next. This is verse 18 of John 21. He said, very truly, I tell you, When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and take you to where you do not want to go. That was the very next thing he said. And the verse 19 explains it. John says, "Um, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Now, church tradition says that Peter died in around the year AD 64 or 65. Likely, church tradition says that uh, Peter was crucified. Some think he was crucified upside down. Maybe you've heard that before, that he was crucified upside down. It's kind of a common church tradition, and we don't know if that's true or not. But certainly this, this prophecy that Jesus is giving here, this word that he has to Peter, sounds like a crucifixion. And this is how it's long been interpreted, that that Jesus is, is telling Peter what's going to happen to him. He's going to be led where he doesn't want to go. His arms are going to be stretched out. It sounds like he's describing um, a, a crucifixion. And so this, this word that Jesus has for Peter was started out just amazing. Peter, I know you failed and you feel like you failed. And I know that you feel this shame from the failure. But listen, I need you to go do this work that, that I have you to do. This is good work. Here's your life's calling. Oh, by the way, here's how it's going to end up. 
It's going to end up with your arms being stretched out. It's going to be up with you being led to where you do not want to go. It's going to be end up with this really painful, painful ending. And so here's how this keeps going here. I want to keep reading here. Verse 20. It says, Peter turned and he, he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Do you know who that is, by the way? The disciple whom Jesus loved? Yeah, it's John. Don't you love it that John writes himself into the story by saying, um, I was there. No, he doesn't say that. No, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's like, Jesus had 12 disciples, but there was really one that was, John is Jesus' self-described best friend is how this is. So Peter turned and he saw Jesus' best friend. That's John's version. And uh, the story keeps going that when Peter saw Jesus' best friend, again, John's version, he asked him, Lord, what about him? So here's this, this thing you've, you've told me. I got to go spend my years tending your sheep and then it's going to end up terribly. But like, what about John? I, <laughs> I love that this is the question that Peter asks because sometimes we call Peter Saint Peter, <laughs> but he is a real person. And this is the real kind of question that a real person starts to ask when they get news like this. Okay, so this is what it's going to be like for me, but what is it going to be like for them? Because surely what he has to go through and he calls himself your best friend, but come on, Jesus, surely what he goes through has to be the same thing that I go through. I can't be the only one who goes through this. He has to go through it too, right? It kind of sounds like what my children do on a regular basis, but this is the conversation that he's having here. So what, what, what about him? Well, listen to Jesus' answer. Verse, verse 22 it says, Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, catch that. If I want him to remain alive until I return, if I, if, if I want him to have a different path than you, if I want him to have a different ending than you, if I want him to have a different trajectory than you, if I want him to have different circumstances than you, if I want him to have a better career than you, if I want him to have a bigger house than you, if I want him to have a better car than you, if I want him to have a better marriage, like if, if I want him to have these things, here's what Jesus says. What is that to you? You must follow me. John's life might look different. John's circumstances might look different. His ending might look different. But Jesus says, what is that to you? You must follow me. You see, there is this great enemy of contentment and saying that you have enough. And this enemy goes by different names. We call it different things from time to time. Sometimes we call this enemy, maybe we call it comparisons this way that we, we compare ourselves to other people and we look at their circumstances versus our circumstances and we wonder why their circumstances look better than our circumstances. There's this great enemy of, of contentment. We call it sometimes circumstances where we com or, or some comparisons where we compare ourselves to others. This enemy goes by different names though. Sometimes we don't call it comparison. Sometimes we call it envy. Sometimes we call it jealousy. I think the biblical word for what we see Peter doing here in this great enemy of contentment that if you don't pay attention to it, it will destroy your capacity for faithfulness. I think the biblical word for this enemy of contentment is, is really, it's, it's coveting. When you covet the circumstances that John has in his life, Peter, you are missing what it is that I have for you. It's, it's coveting and coveting, friends. Uh, comparisons, envy, jealousy, whatever word it is that you want to use is an extremely dangerous thing to your soul. 
and it will destroy your capacity to say that whatever God has given me in my life, that that, that is enough and that I can be faithful with that. It's so dangerous that uh, it's in the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's, it's made like the top ten list and how dangerous this thing of coveting is. The Tenth Commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You've probably heard this before. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet or his male or female servants or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. To say that a little bit more simply, you shall not covet your neighbor's life. You shall not, if you want to use those other words, compare yourself, be jealous, be envious, uh, covet what it is that your neighbor has. Because when you do this, what you're going to end up is missing out on what it is I have for you. Now, full disclosure, when I see the Ten Commandments, I, I love the Ten Commandments. It's one of my favorite pieces of scripture. And I know a lot of people, when they look at the Ten Commandments, they think it's kind of boring because it's just a list of like do's and don'ts and it's straightforward. But I, I love the Ten Commandments. I've been thinking about doing a series on them next year because I think they're so rich and deep and meaningful. There's just so much to the Ten Commandments and how to think about life. And just for instance, this Tenth Commandment, it's fascinating. It's particularly fascinating. Uh, it's been long noticed that this 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's life, that this 10th commandment is different than the other nine in a very subtle but significant way. Maybe you've never picked up on this before, but the 10th commandment is different than the other nine because the 10th commandment, uh, the 10th commandment, I can't see it. I can see the other nine. I can see idol worship. I can see breaking the Sabbath. I can see murder, adultery, stealing, false witness, whatever it is, the other, the other nine. I, I can see the other nine. But the 10th commandment, I, I can't see envy and coveting and comparison. I can't see that out, you know, in someone's life. And instead, coveting is what happens on the inside and not on the outside. And it's the only, ten, only of the 10 commandments that's like that happens on the inside and not on the outside. And so there's been this long tradition in interpreting the 10th commandment that maybe the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's life, is less a commandment and more a reward. Because if you've lived the first nine commandments, your life is going to be so rich and so full and so blessed, you're not going to want to, to live anyone else's life. And, and I love that idea that if you structure your life in such a way that it is fully uh, focused on what the Lord has for you, that you're not going to want to live into somebody else's life and their circumstances and what they have for you. Which, of course, leads me to talk about Facebook. <laughs> Someone groaned, and that is the appropriate response to that sentence. A couple years ago, it wasn't, it wasn't that long ago, a couple years ago, there was this article that The Atlantic published that found that the number one emotion that people experience when on Facebook or Instagram, those two sites in particular, that there was that one dominant emotion that people felt when they were on those sites. Can you guess what it was? Envy. That was the dominant emotion that people feel when they're on these sites. And, and the reason for that is, is very simple, that when you're on Facebook or Instagram, what you're looking at is somebody else's highlights, right? You're looking at that incredible vacation they're on. You're looking at that great date night they have. You're looking at how beautiful their yard looks. You're looking at how great their kids are and how smiling they are and how they just scored the goal in the soccer game. You're looking at all those great things about their life because no one posts the picture of them yelling at their children. And, and no one posts the picture of the credit card bill that comes after the great vacation. Like no one posts those things. They just post 
They post the highlights. And so we walk around with these little like windows into other people's great things that are going on in their life. And, and what happens is we end up feeling um, this, this, this envy. This is a dominant emotion that people feel while on Facebook or Instagram, both, both sites. And, and, and that envy, it comes with a cost. It's, it's, not a, it's not a neutral kind of thing. It comes with a cost. The same article said that, um, that out of just six hours a week of use of, of face, being on Facebook, which is like not a lot, six hours a week is less than an hour a day. That's not very much. I read another article this week in the Wall Street Journal that said that adolescent girls spend six to nine hours a day on social media. And so there's, we're talking about six hours a week. But in six hours a week of social media use, uh, people responded by significantly feeling more um, anxiety, depression, and general unhappiness. What happens when you feed your soul envy and coveting and comparison is it drives you to a place of darkness. It drives you to a place of wishing that, that my life was looking like, like someone else's life. You see, like the real danger of, of feeding ourselves this diet of comparing ourselves to others and being envious of others. It's not just that you're breaking one of the 10 commandments is really what, what you're doing is the longer you, you live in this wishing that your life looked like someone else's life, what you end up doing is you end up wishing that not just that your life looked like someone else's life, you end up wishing that your life was their life. And the more time and energy and emotion you put in wishing that your life was someone else's life, the less time and energy and emotion you're going to have to live the life that God has given to you. Envy and comparisons and coveting and jealousy, whatever word you wanna use for this, it, it will destroy your capacity to be faithful to what God has for you. Peter is on the brink of missing what it is that the Lord has for him because he wants to compare himself to what John has and the future that John has for him. And so Jesus says, what is that to you? How is that of your concern that you need to think about you and, and the life that I've given to you for you to be faithful? And so we run this risk of, of losing the life that God has for us the more we feed our souls a, a diet of coveting, a diet of envy, a diet of, of jealousy and comparison. As, and as for followers of Jesus, this comes at an even greater cost because as followers of Jesus, we believe that everything we have in life has been given to us or rather entrusted to us from God. That it's all God's to begin with and he's given this into our lives, whatever it is we have, our, our talents, our time, our relationships, our, our money, whatever it is we have, the circumstances that we have, that God has given it to us for us to manage it. This is a, a pretty basic Christian biblical belief that we see that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And therefore what is for us is our job is, is to manage this well, whatever it is that God has given to us. Biblically speaking, the word for this kind of thinking, um, biblically speaking, that word is stewardship. That our job is to steward all that God has given to us to manage this in a way that brings honor to him. Uh, my wife, Abby, and I, we've been volunteering on, on Wednesday nights with the kids. We, we've been leading the third and fourth grade group on Wednesday nights, which is a ton of fun and also just a ton of fun. It's just a ton of fun, lots of energy, but it's a ton of fun. And this last Wednesday night, uh, the story that we got to lead the kids through was a story that was all about stewardship. And I love that we were able to lead the kids through this because there's this story that Jesus told that's all about this idea that, that you and I have been given certain things and trusted certain things in our lives and that our job is to, is to steward those things well. 
You see, Jesus told a story about a rich man and this rich man had three servants, three stewards, three managers that he had invested his property with and his estate with. And these three men were, were called to, to manage this well. So he went away for a while, the rich man, he came back and he wanted to get uh, an accounting of what it is that his, these managers had done. The first manager had been given a lot of his estate and he managed it well. The second person had been given about half as much as the first and had managed it well. And the third person had been given about a 10th as much as the first and not done it very well, very good job with it. And, and so the first two people who had managed the estate well, um, the, the rich man says to them, very simply, you've, you've heard these words before, it's Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant, right? You've been faithful with a few things, I'm gonna put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. But to the one who, who didn't do well, who dug a hole and, and just took what it is that this master had given him and didn't do anything with it and just, just stuck it away, the rich man comes to him and he just very simply says this, you wicked, lazy servant. And the point of the story is, is, is very clear that, that all of us have been given and trusted, really is the word, God's things, God's wealth, God's time, God's relationships, all, everything we have, it is his to begin with. And, and our job is to steward this well. And the more time I spend wishing my life looked like someone else's life or my circumstances looked like someone else's circumstances, the less time, the less energy, the less emotion I'm gonna to have to be able to stand before the Lord and give an account of the way that I've been entrusted and stewarded this for myself. This is another reason why generosity is such a key and critical discipline for Christians because it's through the practice of generosity that we, that we grow into this into the stewardship of understanding that everything is actually the Lord's. And my job is to take what he's given to me, not worry about someone else, but just what he's given to me and to manage this well. Generosity, tithing, giving is one of the key disciplines that teaches us to think in this kind of way. It's certainly been that way for me. Um, I went to seminary, which is like graduate school at SMU in Dallas. And when I was there, I was, I was married, my wife and I, we were married and uh, we were broke, just really, really, really broke. I cannot overstate how broke we were during those years when we were in school. Uh, I was working part-time as a youth director in this little church in South Dallas County. My wife was waiting tables at a restaurant in North Dallas. We were living in the city, which was super expensive and we were broke. I don't know if I've told you this so far. We, we were broke, I just want you to understand the situation that we were in. We didn't have kids. And so when you don't have kids, uh, one of the things you go do is you get a puppy. And so we got a puppy. A Jack Russell Terrier is what we got. He was the worst dog I think I've ever been around. He lived for 12 years. For 12 years, we called him a Jack Russell terrorist because he just destroyed things all the time. And so when we got this dog, again, we were, we were broke. And so we got the dog and we had to pay for the dog. But to pay for the dog meant that I, I didn't have enough money to then buy a crate for the dog. And we lived in an apartment and we like, I didn't have enough money for both things. And so I just, I wanted the dog. So I went and I, we, we got the dog. We got this, we got this puppy, lived in this apartment. Foolish, terrible mistake. So I didn't have a crate. So I go to class during the day, I'd come back. I'd, I'd tend to the puppy when I was home and, and uh, take him for a walk, or whatever. And one time I came back from class and we had this chair in our, in our apartment that my wife's grandmother had, had given to her. And he had like eaten it. I mean, it, half of it's gone, but not a half that you could, I mean, just big plotches of just chairs just gone. 
because I, I, didn't, I didn't have enough money for a crate, so I definitely don't have money to replace this chair. And so what we would do for the next like year is we would take one of the blankets, right? And just kind of put it over the chair. So you couldn't tell that these massive holes were in the chair. And if you had people over, you'd be really quickly to sit in the chair before they could, because you were embarrassed that they're gonna find that the chair looks like it has an armrest, but it doesn't really have an armrest. So this is our, our situation when, when I was in seminary. And, and we did this very foolish uh, thing financially for those uh, three years that I was in school. Very foolish thing financially. Um, is that we, every month, we gave 10% of our income to the church. Now, that's a foolish thing to do when you can't afford some basic things like a dog crate. It's a foolish thing to do when you can't afford to replace a chair. And we had this, this practice, I don't even know why we did it, but for our whole married life, we had this practice of giving 10% of what we made and we gave it to the church. And, you know, in those days, 10% of not a lot was not a lot. However, when you don't have very much, 10% not a lot is a whole lot. And, and you're giving this money away and, and, and you're constantly, continually doing this. And, and we scrimped and we saved and we finally were able to go buy a new chair. When I say buy a new chair, I don't mean we went to Pottery Barn. I mean, we went to Ikea and bought a $125 chair that are like, I can't believe we could afford this kind of thing. And we, we put it in our, our apartment and I had that chair for 15 years. And it was one of those chairs that moved with us um, five times. And finally, my wife made me throw it away when we moved to Springfield just this last summer because it was just tore up and it was not made to live more than three years, I don't think. But I just, I kept on, I held on to this chair because for me, this chair had come to represent something more symbolic than just a chair. Like it was tucked away in our basement and I mean, no one wanted to sit in it because it was 15 years old and it was an Ikea chair, it was really cheap. But it had come to represent something to me about this time in my life where, where I learned this lesson that even when I didn't have a lot, when I trusted God with what he'd given to me, I might've wanted things to be different and the circumstances to look different. I, I found that no matter what happened, he always took care of us. He always came through for us. He was continually faithful. We never really had for want, whether that besides some, some things like I wanted a new chair, but like God provided for us over and over again. And there was this window of time where, where I learned this in a very practical way that when I see my life and the circumstances of my life and what it is God has given me to manage, and when I manage that well, I see his faithfulness all over the place. And I began to see that even if I don't feel like I have enough, I actually have enough because God is the one who's providing for me and, and he's the one who's taking care of me. And so, and so friends, to get practical this morning, I wanna want share something practical I want you to think through. Um, this next Sunday, we're gonna receive commitment cards at the church. And the reason we're doing these commitment cards or pledge cards is not for us. We're not doing this because we're building a church budget off of this. We're not doing this because we need to know what the revenue of the congregation is gonna be next year. We're doing this because you need to do this. You need to sit down and you need to think through a very important question. With what God has given you in your life, how are you gonna be faithful? That pledge card is an incredible opportunity for you to put pen to paper and to answer that vital question with what God has entrusted to you in your life. How are you gonna be faithful? How are you gonna respond to his leading and what are you gonna do with the resources that God has, has put in place for you. This is a question that's more about our soul than it is about our, 
our, our bank account. It's more about who we're becoming and, and, and how it is that we're gonna live into the people that God wants us to be. He has entrusted his resources into your life. So now the question's gonna be, what are you gonna do with that? And as you think through that question this week, here's what I hope you hear ringing in your ears. Jesus looking to Peter and saying just very simply this, you must follow me. You've just listened to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening.